We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Oh my gosh. Hello, friends. My name is Bethany Lee. Welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. This is episode number one. I am so excited for you to be here. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this first guest of mine. Noelle Floyd is a role model and she is a leader in the industry, to say the least. Coming from a teeny tiny blog just a couple years ago, she has turned that into a very successful printed magazine, online shop, subscription box, and is seriously one of the world's leading equestrian sport lifestyle websites. I mean, noelfloyd.com has it all. So if you are looking for a lesson in grit, you're in the right place. Hi, Bethany. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy you made it to the Equestrian Podcast today. We're so happy to have you. And I'm stoked to be here. Awesome. Um, So let's get right to it. Uh, You have, I mean, for lack of better terms, created an empire in the equestrian industry when it comes to (laughs) something that started, I mean, seriously, something that started from a blog that is now um, just so multifaceted and um, definitely a lot of people's go-to source for all things equestrian, whether that's fashion or latest news. Um, and it's just amazing. So I would love to hear kind of how that all began. Um, did you start riding at a young age and that kind of um, spurred on the idea? Kind of, kind of tell me your story. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've i loved horses since I think the moment I looked or the moment I saw a horse. I, <laughs> I think I, I definitely am like super cliche in that way. I think um, you know, my dad stuck me on a horse when I was maybe one or two years old. And first time I was old enough, I think to like communicate my feelings, I was definitely like completely and totally horse crazy. Yeah. So horses have been a big part of my life from the beginning, but it wasn't a particular discipline or a particular way of riding. I think it was just being around them. Like I just, I wanted anytime we'd go on holiday, I would like seek out a barn that was close to wherever we were in the world. Um, So I think just horse connection was something that I was like very passionate about. And then, you know, as you get older and you get competitive and you make friends that are, you know, in a particular discipline, then I probably around the age of, I think, seven or eight decided that um, I really liked to jump horses. I thought that was like the coolest, most thrilling thing. Um, and so I think show jumping and I started, you know, like a lot of North American girls, I started doing hunters and then I got into equitation and then I got into the jumpers. Um, so I had a really, I think, classic North American progression through the different disciplines that way, for sure. Very cool. Um, and then, I mean, as you were growing up, riding as much as you can, I mean, the the typical horse crazy girl, um, did you ever think that you were going to have an equestrian related career kind of what was your what was your dream job growing up well my my dream job was to work with horses for sure yeah but I didn't think that that would happen because actually interestingly enough um I think my father from a very young age was 
really clear in telling me that, you know, you don't miss mix your passion with, with your career choice, you know, that, that, that wasn't, um, a, you know, a wise life decision that you should, you know, you should pick a vocation that could support your love and passion for horses. And that was a message that I repeatedly got given as a kid and as a teenager. And so my, um, I was pre-law, I went to university and I was doing my undergraduate to work my way towards law school. And then, um, I sort of halfway through that realized that I had a little bit more of a sort of a business mind. Um, and I was quite passionate about entrepreneurship and building businesses. And so I decided to go to business school, but even when I was in business school, I didn't think that I would have, um, a career in horses. I thought I was actually going to get my CFI, CFA. I was going to become a certified financial analyst, um, which is hilarious because when I think about that now, it's like, feels (laughs) like a completely different person. Yeah. Um, and then halfway through business school, I kind of had like a, an epiphany. Like I realized that it was important to be, I think it was important to follow a path of passion. And I think it was, I, I just, I think there were a number of things that take place. You know, you have a lot of experiences in university and you have a lot of different ways in, in, in which you grow. And I think one of the ways, one of the things that I realized was, you know, I, I found the, the, the bravery, I found the, the, um, the confidence to say to, to say to, you know, the people in my life, my parents and people who had told me that, you know, it wasn't, you shouldn't try to work in horses. You should try to have a job that can support you and how, so that you can have horses. And that was going to be, you know, being, you know, getting my CFA and working in, um, in finance. It wasn't to actually work in, in, in horses. Um, and yet I definitely remember this like very vivid day where I called my, my, my father and I said, I don't want to get a CFA. I actually, I want to, I want to, I want to, uh, try to, I want to buy a few sale horses with, um, some of the money I have left over that I, that, um, from my university fund. And I, I want to, I want to try and see if I can make it in the riding business. Wow. <laughs> he wasn't too happy about it. I'll give, I'll give you that. But, um, but I'm really happy I did it because, um, I mean, this is 100% my calling. And I, I, I think, we have moments in our lives where we make decisions and it leads you down a path that you potentially may not have originally thought was meant for you. But when you, when you, once you're here and once you've arrived, you realize this is absolutely what you were meant to be doing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, man, that must have been kind of a scary time in your life, a little nerve wracking that is like, okay, I'm making this huge life change. I kind of have a little bit to prove now. Like what what were what were the next few steps as you transitioned into um more of the equestrian world? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I was really <laughs> nervous because I mean, I'd been told my whole life that you don't that's not what you do. You don't, you know, you don't make your passion your vocation. You don't you don't build a business around something that you love. And it wasn't like, um, it, it was, it was more because I'd been brought up to understand that horses are expensive right. and, and the, and the, and to have a life 
either competing horses or owning horses or just being involved in the lifestyle in general is ten, you know, it definitely leans itself to um, an expensive calling. So it was best that I think about it pro- proactively and I, and I follow down, you know, I follow a career that would support that those life choices. Um, so, so when I, when I, I kind of pushed back and I said, no, I want to see if I can actually, you know, work in the industry. And it's not like I was a particularly gifted rider. I wasn't, I had done some catch riding. I had, you know, I had sure I'd had a few successes as a junior rider and whatever, but I, I certainly wasn't overly gifted as a, I what, you know, I, I wasn't an Eric Lamaz or a Kent Farrington or a BZ Madden with that by, sure. by any stretch. So, um, I, the next few steps were really nerve wracking. I, 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 I invested in these two horses, um, and I imported them into the U S. Um, neither of them turned out to be what they, what I thought they would be. Hmm. So it was a total, it was a total failure, um, at the beginning. And, um, it was really heartbreaking because I put so much time and effort. I, I had worked really hard to get a job riding for Chris Pratt in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of his working student. I had these two horses that I was working on, um, that I would sell eventually in the California market. Um, I eventually did sell them, but I sold them at a loss. Um, mm-hmm. and in that process of, I went up to Spruce Meadows and I was riding that, my mare, um, and I wasn't really getting the results that I wanted. Um, I realized when I was at Spruce and I was, I developed a lot of great relationships with, um, some grooms, um, there. And I learned that, I needed to go to Europe that I clearly had, there was this huge knowledge gap and and perspective gap. And I needed to understand all the things that I didn't know about the industry, about the way that the sport worked. Um, and that growing up in North America, there was like so much that I didn't really know about the way that the industry worked and, and the way that horses were being developed. And so I wanted to go to the source. And so I was at the summer series at Spruce Meadows and I decided that I was going to get on a plane in the fall and I was going to fly over and I was going to live and work in, in Belgium. And at that point, had you already sold your two investment horses? I'd sold one and okay. I didn't sell the other. I sent my other mare to Nikki Simpson in, okay. um, in California. And I, um, I talked to Nikki and Nikki was awesome. I really trusted her ability to be able to take care of that horse and to be able to, um, to be able to sell her for, I told her what I really needed to needed for her eventually, like once she'd been able to find the right buyer for her. Um, and then I got on a plane and I, I didn't even know where I was going to work or ride. I just, I knew that, um, I knew that I needed to be over in Europe. So I'd sold one, but not the other one. Okay. Had you had contacts over in Europe that you knew, like, did you have a plan in place before you moved over there? Yes. So that's something that I did have. I'm my, most of my family is Belgian and they live in Belgium. So I was really lucky that I kind of had a landing pad. Sure. Um, I had actually met, so Stefan Conter of Stefex Stables was actually a family friend. Um, He went to my cousin's uh, wedding. He, um, I actually met him right when he started Stefex Stables. I think I was like doing, I think I was doing like the three foot hunters. Um, and he, I remember I went over and I visited this, this guy who was, he, you know, he had these, these ambitions of making like one of the biggest show jumping, um, 
barns in like in the world. And I remember him taking me to his, he had this new barn he had built and he took me downstairs and there was like all this swag. There was like blankets and saddle pads, (laughs) hats and jackets. And I remember I was like 10 or 12 or something like that. And I remember just standing there and him just like piling all this stuff and being like, you take this back to you take this back to Canada and you ride in all this stuff. And I was like, <laughs> thanks. And he just piled me. I had like saddle pads and I had like a rain jacket and a puffy jacket and a hat. Oh and I, I remember walking around, like, I mean, I was riding in like in Vancouver, um, in this like little sort of like this little suburb and walking around so proudly with my Stefex stuff. And everyone was like, what's Stefex? And I was like, Oh, it's a barn in Belgium. They're really cool. They have these like amazing horses. Um, and everyone was just like, I, they, they didn't know who it, who they were. Of yeah. course, you know, 10 years later, everyone, everyone knew who, what's, everyone knows who Steph X Stables is now. Yeah. That's amazing. You're, so you were just very hipster with, with them. I guess I was, I was very lucky because I didn't get a job with Stefan. I wasn't good enough, um, to do that. So I got a job with Mark, um, Mark Van Dyke, who's a guy who actually, works with Stefan. Um, and he has a big, um, mostly stallions. Um, and he's about, I don't know, 10 minutes drive from stuff. Okay. Um, and it was a, it's a bit of a smaller, it was a bit of a smaller, um, sort of setup, but he worked a lot with Stefan. He would, he would develop a lot of horses like that. Um, uh, what's the horse's name? Was, we called him Pom, but, um, he was a horse that Niels Brunsiels rode at one point for a long, did a bunch of the nation's cups. There was like a few horses, um, and one of which um, Daniel Deusser was riding for a number of years, um, and those horses like came through the, that program. And those were horses that I was responsible for doing all the flat work on and occasional jump schooling. But like I was very much like at the bottom of the rung. Got it. Got it. I mean, I bet you learned so much during that time. I mean, it must have been such a great learning experience. Oh, it was. um I mean you're like I was the only girl on the property most people didn't speak English Mark doesn't speak very good English him and I communicated mostly in like a mixture of Flemish French and English my French and my French is very bad so um I him and I communicated in this kind of weird like hand movements a few hand gestures um you know I learned how to ride and and school the horses with not a lot of like verbal (laughs) feedback. Um, I, you know, all the grooms were Brazilian and they mostly spoke spoke Portuguese. Um, And I would go to shows. And that's when I started meeting a lot of people within the community over there was that I would go and I would help, um, you know, train and school the horses before they would compete before the, you know, their main rider would get on and, and ride. And, um, that was kind of where I started to actually like feel, I, I started to understand like where I could, where, where I could really like find a place in this community, which was, I, I felt really at home making connections and meeting lots of people. And like, you know, I'd get off one of the stallions and I'd go and I'd start setting up jumps. And then I start talking to like, you know, Niels Brunsiels or Maurice Van Roosbroek or um, Stefan or like everyone would be at these local Belgian shows. Um, I got to know Gregory Wassele, like, you know, everyone's there because they're all schooling their horses. 
Um, and so that was kind of how my my network began, I guess you'd say. Got it. So so we're up to about 2012 now where um, you're still in Belgium and you come up with the idea. I mean, it first it first started off. Uh, Noel Floyd started off as a blog. Is that right? Yeah, I started so, it. It was a WordPress blog that I started in my bedroom in Belgium. <laughs> and what I mean at that point, what was what was the goal? What was the kind of mission behind creating it? Um, so I had actually written out a mission statement on the website when I launched it, which was the mission statement read something similar to, um, if I can contribute to building, you know, creating more connection and bringing people closer together within the sport of show jumping, then, you know, I will have, well, I will have achieved, you know, what I, what I wanted at the outset of the blog, which was, you know, to create, I had a number of friends messaging me from North America when I was in Belgium, when I was riding over there. And I had, you know, people were asking me what it was like, how I, how I found a job, um, what it was like finding a job, how hard work, how much work was it, which mind you was a lot of work. (laughs) It was like, you know, I think people wanted, I think there were a lot of riders who was really, who were really interested in uh, making that step, but they felt really intimidated by it. They felt, sure. you know, disconnected from what was taking place at the epicenter of show jumping. They felt really far away from from that by being in North America, which is something growing up on the West Coast, like growing up in 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 Vancouver, Canada, you feel so far away from everything that's happening at kind of the core of show mm-hmm. jumping that I understood that feeling. I knew exactly what that felt like. So I started the blog um, as a way to kind of speak in this really informal, honest way about what was happening, you know, how I was experiencing the results, you know, who was winning, who was interesting, what was it like going to Aachen, what was it like going to Hickstead, what was it like going to the first couple global championship shows, what was it like meeting these these riders. Um, and I remember really well, I was riding young horses in Spain. I was down at the um, at the the show down down there in Jerez. It's like you know, the very very bottom, um, and I remember I remember so specifically having a bunch of drinks. I developed like a really good friendship with John Whitaker um, and Rob Whitaker and a few of the English boys, and they were all like a really good laugh. And I was having a really tough time. Um, I, I was I was really struggling with you know, showing young horses without a trainer. I was having to do all the training myself. They were all five-year-olds and six-year-olds. A lot of them had been broken late. Um, so, you know, and you're still, you're still, you're jumping, you're having to jump them meter 10, meter 15. Um, and I was really struggling to, to, to give the results um, that the owner wanted. And I felt really alone. I didn't really have a lot of friends. And so I made friends with, and I just happened to, be, you know, make really good friends with John. Um, and we just really hit it off. And because I had grown up in North America and because I'd grown up sort of in this not, it's like not a big, you know, show like Thunderbird is, was, I mean, Thunderbirds may put it on the map now, but mm-hmm. I mean, Langley or Vancouver is not a, like a big, big, you know, show stop for, for show jumping or, or anything or horse sport in general. Sure. So like I, I grew up knowing that John Whitaker was a, was a, was an important person, but I don't think I really understood like how much of a legend he was and so my my naivete really allowed me to have like a really authentic friendship with him 
and by developing this authentic friendship with him, I was able to um, learn, like he would just tell these amazing stories at the end of a day. And you'd be like, you, you know, you'd been up since five and you were exhausted and you were, maybe you'd had a good day, maybe you'd had a bad day. And he could always make you laugh with these like amazing stories of success or failure that he'd experienced as a, as a, as a, as a young rider growing up in the sport, you know, 20, 30 years prior. And it was that moment. So it was like, we were down there sort of March, I think March um, of 2012. And I remember being like, God, you know, it would have been so awesome for me to know these, these stories of like, you know, of people really coming through the, through the levels, people doing it, riding on a shoestring, like people who did not come from money and who had developed a place in the sport, who'd found these amazing horses. And I thought, God, there's like these, so, these great stories that should be told. I mean, I wish I had known these stories right. when I was growing up. And so that was really like, I think sitting around, sitting, <laughs> sitting around the ring, warm up ring with like, you know, with John was actually probably one of like the big moments of giving me the idea to start the blog. Awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. And obviously, um, there, is, there are tons of people who are interested in those um, kind of like intimate stories that you'd really only hear if you were, you know, like out to dinner with John or, you know, grabbing a beer or something. And so it's exactly. cool. How, yeah, it's so cool how you um, allow people um, the opportunity to kind of get in on these um, on these stories. It's it's really amazing. So you're you're working away on your blog, not not fully, you know, knowing where it's going to go from there. And you're creating um, this community of people who are, are following what you have to say. At, at what point did you realize you needed to take the next step up with it? Um, so it was kind of my side hustle for most of that year. Um, so I, I took some t- time to go over to, I mean, I, I kind of jumped on it pretty quickly. Like, I mean, if anyone who knows me really well knows that I'm kind of like a go big or go home person. So I think I quite quickly um, understood that I was going to be able to put it on the map if I were was willing to go above and beyond Mm -hmm. what um, what you know, what was asked, I guess, of like an initial blog. So I remember I applied to like all the shows like I applied to get media credentials in Aachen. I applied like to every single horse show that I could possibly find a cheap flight to, or I could drive to. That was the benefit of yeah. living in Brussels was that I could drive to Aachen. I could drive to Rotterdam. I could drive to Paris. I could drive most places. I didn't really have to fly. I drove to London too in my little French car <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want to pay for, I didn't have the money to pay for a rental car and I didn't want to pay to fly over there. So I drove over there on in the tunnel. Um, mm. And I asked, everybody if they had any spare tickets for London I was so lucky that I and I swear you can't do this now but I remember driving over to London I took my I like I like basically went over there and, and I crashed at my cousin's house in London which was about I don't know like a 20 or 30 minute walk from um, Greenwich which is where the London Olympics was being held I had no media credentials and I had bought this huge 300 millimeter lens Wow. on this tiny little um this tiny little d 
700 Nikon, which any <laughs> photographers who are listening will know, it's like not really meant for this humongous 300 millimeter lens. Yeah. And I, and I like begged amongst all my friends and Stefan was actually one of those people who gave me a ticket that he wasn't using to go sit in the stands and watch the show jumping. Wow. And I photographed from the stands, which I swear you definitely can't do anymore. <laughs> but I like, so I photographed the entire, like all the show jumping events that I could get tickets to, which was, which was the team final and the individual final. Okay. And I had no background in photography besides like, okay, my mom is a really good photographer. Um, and she'd put a camera in my hand, but I had like no formal training as a photographer. So wow. um, I was just photographing and I was kind of like figuring out the photo editing on iPhoto um, on wow. my, my MacBook and I, and I just shot the whole thing and I posted every single, um, day, the results, the photographs, I did these big photo albums on the blog, which WordPress had this great feature for at the time you could do these like really great slide, like slideshows and everyone loved the slideshows. And I just would take a ton of photos, try to take as many photos of the course walk and, and everything. And then I would write a whole report. And because I would go straight from the event. And of course I couldn't talk to any of the riders because I had no media credentials. Right. But every once in a, in a while, like some of the riders would come up and sit in the stands and they would have, I remember like, um, I'm trying to think who it was and who would sit in front of me and they would, um, I would kind of like be trying to listen in on what they were saying about the <laughs> and stuff. And I would, because I would walk straight from, I would go, I would leave Greenwich and I would go straight to, um, straight to back to my house and I would start writing away. Like I would write away. I would try to get that blog post up as straight, like as soon as possible. And I would get those yeah. photos up as soon as possible. And I was lucky that I'd known a few people that I was able to get, like I was able to kind of talk to a few people. I, I made friends with, um, with Dennis, you know, Dennis Lynch and Julia Hargreaves. Julia Hargreaves is like my best friend now. Um, cool. but that's when we first met and we st first started hanging out. I knew Reed at the time um, a little bit, but I was better friends with her boyfriend at the time, Tim Grudley. Mm -hmm. And so I was like hanging out with a few people and I was getting like the kind of inside scoop on what people thought. I was like, I remember getting drinks with Tiffany and Eric in, um, in this little pub that was like right across the street from where the ring was set up. Wow. And so I felt like I could get kind of like, so when I was writing the blogs, I was giving everyone like a real kind of inside feel of what the riders were talking about and how they were feeling about the overall event. Um, and I think the London 2012 Olympics was kind of when people were starting to talk about the blog in a way that they were like, this is something different. This is something mm -hmm. we haven't really seen before. Yeah. And I mean, again, you were giving them a perspective that I, I mean, you can pretty much guarantee that they weren't getting anywhere else. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was the aim. I wanted to kind of I wanted to create something that I would have wanted to read myself. I, I, I wanted to give something really grassroots. Totally. Totally. Um, awesome. So, I mean, as you're, as you're building this up and um, creating more and more, a, a bigger and bigger of a community, um, you, I, I know since then have, have things, you have your magazine, you have, um, some other endeavors that you more recently, um, started. How did that, uh, progression go from blog to your, your printing and, and selling a magazine to people? Well, I realized 
uh, you know, a couple of years into the blog that I needed, you know, sometimes I would go to an event and I would talk to like sort of major FBI officials, or I would um, try to get an interview with um, sort of someone more like of the kind of official level, like people who are sort of in the back end side of the sport. And they would kind of sometimes not really take me seriously because they were like, oh, you're just a blog. Like, you know, we don't really, um, you know, are you from, are you from horse and hound or are you from, they would want to know, like, Mm -hmm. and they would always like, they'd always, um, refer to these magazines and they were like, oh, are you from practical horsemen or something? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm noafloy.com. I'm a blog. And it was interesting because like the horse shows like Aachen were super supportive. They let me in the first year and I had literally had the blog up for like a few months, which blew my mind. Mm-hmm. But some of the official, you know, some of the sort of more official side of, of the sport, um, they, they didn't really seem to, um, I don't know, jive with the idea of a blog. So as soon as I had enough capital to start a magazine, I basically knew that I needed to start a magazine in order to create to something that people could touch, like something that um, people could touch and feel. If my blog was so virtual and it was very digital, and I realized that I wanted to give people something you could take home in a way that I could physically connect with them. Um, and so the magazine started in 2015, summer of 2015. And um, I, I remember talking to Georgina and Jesse and Lucy. And I was like, I want you guys to be the first cover of my magazine. And I want to shoot it on the beach in Miami. And I want you to be in your Team USA jackets. And they were like, yeah, that sounds rad. And I remember we were like having fun behind the scenes. And I took photos of them like lying on these, the sort of like these um, deck chairs out in front of the um, this like amazing, I think it's like the one hotel where we all, where everyone stays at for the, that global. Mm-hmm. And we shot it out on the beach and everyone was walking around in their bikinis and these girls completely slayed. They were so awesome. <laughs> um, and I remember it was like, right when, um, it was like, right, sort of right when like Lucy was really taking off, Jesse was really taking a lot of, um, getting a lot of attention. Uh, Georgina's, I mean, been getting a lot of it. Yeah attention for a long time so she was like such a pro and she was so awesome about everything and I remember that cover came out and everyone was um everyone was like what is this and (laughs) apparently USCF had a meeting about the cover later and they said there was a whole meeting at USCF about um because the cover caused caused a lot of controversy because they referred to the sexualization of the Team USA jackets. Okay. And so wow. I, I remember being like, and that was a moment where I went, oh, so like the cover could really create a lot of buzz. And I yeah. was like, oh, interesting. Okay. So mm-hmm. if I like really um, choose to, 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 to have a standout cover that I could have a lot of people talking about the magazine. And so that was kind of the beginning of the magazine in that way. Wow. And at that point, uh, so, so what, 2015, um, how, how big was your team? Oh, not very big. It was me <laughs> and, uh, a right. Like I, I, I had enough money to hire on one other person to help me. Um, and she was my first hire. I recruited her from, um, horse and style magazine. Her name was Erin Gilmore. She, 
was um, like one of the, she was amazing. She, she helped me build um, a huge editorial platform with just two people, like just me and just me and her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she helped me. We had a consulting agency, which helped me um, build the business. And I really needed that consulting agency to um, help build the blog. Um, and so there was just, <laughs> there was just two of us. And a part-time, wow. a person, uh, Charlotte Falk, who is my, still my magazine, uh, she's still my creative director and magazine designer. Um, and I recruited her um, from an art school here in Vancouver. And she just did it on the side. Like she was a full-time teacher. And I had her, um, I asked her if she would help me design the magazine. Um, and she gave me a friends and family rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was, that was, that was, we were still a really small team. So but, how did you, how did you go from, I mean, walking, walking to shows, trying to like scrounge for tickets for London yeah. to now you're able to, I mean, yes, a small team, but how, how, what was that transition like from now being able to afford to have a, a team of your own? So you mean like now is in now or then as now is in 2015 um, even, when I started the magazine? Yeah, even just from 2012 to 2015. Oh, uh, yeah, a lot of a, a lot of a lot of work, um, a lot of paying yourself like nothing. Sure. Um, I mean, you you kind of it has to be a really when you're doing it very grassroots and you're doing it like um, you're kind of building it. Uh, you have to build it slowly because you're constrained um, financially. You, you like you, it, it becomes a very organic slow growth. And so what happens is you kind of learn as you go. And then when you have, you know, when you make your first hire, you really make it count. Cause there's just like this really, this big, this, this very thick feeling of um, it's a startup and we have to just, you know, every hour counts, you work seven days a week. Right. Um, I remember I made, the following year I had, I was able to hire, um, one more person and we had a few interns. Um, and I think 2016 was the first year. Yeah. The winter of 2015 going into 2016 was the first year that I, the first time I had ever taken a day off from when I started the blog. So that's kind of the, what you need to commit yourself to be able to like, um, you need to be able to commit yourself in a way that if you want this, this, this baby that you've built, mm-hmm. um, to grow, you, you have to sort of put in all hours of the day and night and work seven days a week to get to the point where you can have enough money and that your, your, my consulting agency is, was what, um, and it was consulting writers on their social media, building websites for them. I, I found, um, an agency in New York that was willing to work with us to build websites for different for different riders and different businesses. And that was what helped us generate because I didn't want to just take any type of advertising money from different, uh, different people within the, in the industry to put on the blog. I really wanted the blog to kind of be allowed to grow in a natural way without kind of littering it with too much advertising. I was a little bit nervous about having a lot of flashing advertising on it. So um, I really put a lot of attention into building the consulting agency that would allow me to generate the capital to hire my first, you know, full-time writer. And then we had, then I had enough money to hire another full-time writer. And then I would have a little bit of money left over to have one or two interns. Yeah. that I mean, that is so smart. And I feel like you were 
um, a bit before your time because um, I feel like now, now you hear all about um, when you're creating a business and trying to generate income to be able to offer services and things that where you already have a community of people following you and and wanting to hear and see what you create, but being able to offer um, kind of a tangible service is really um, the best and the most authentic way to to generate income. And that's, I mean, something you were doing years ago. And I think the way that you were able to do that instead of what we sometimes see today, where it's just, um, you know, a, basically a space of advertising. You, I mean, you you lose that authentic audience very quickly. So I think that was really smart on your end of how you were able to navigate that. Well, and I, I think because I always try to think of myself as being on the other side, like I always try to build build aspects of my platform that I imagine how would I receive that if I was on the other end. Sure. And I've always, I always found the flashing advertising is somehow like not like I, I felt it not like a breach of trust because that's too extreme, but I just remember finding it would affect my, my, the way that I, I it would affect the way that I looked and, and experienced that, um, that platform. And I, and I, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted people to really feel like we were just having like a conversation and that it was just like going to my blog was just like talking to me. And I, and I, and I really stayed away and from advertising for as long as I possibly could. And even then the advertising that I did start to take on more towards 2016 was really selective. And I really was much more into kind of partnering up with people and, and, and saying like, let's tell your story you know, rather than just like having a banner ad, let's like tell your story throughout, through, through the blog. And then let's see if people will, 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 um, whether that will resonate with them and the readers. Yeah. Amazing. So now you have so much going on. You're, you're, I'm, I would assume your team is much larger than 2015. Um, What, what is your, (laughs) what is your, what is your involvement in, in the brand look like now? And what is, what is like a normal day or a normal week look like for you? So yeah, now I'm blessed that I have, uh, you know, we have 10, 10 internal full-time people. And then we have, um, I think, and then we have like, I mean, a ton of writers and a ton of illustrators and a ton of photographers. And I think, you know, the people we are speaking with on a weekly basis, like, like between 20 and 25. So we have a lot of, um, you know, but the internal team is, 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 um, is 10, which is rad. And I'm, I'm very, I couldn't be more proud of the team that I have now. And I think anyone will tell you when you're at this stage of growth in, in what is still, you know, I still consider noelfoy.com a startup. Um, and I think when you're at this stage, you really, um, it's so important that you build a team that is like an, ex, you know, yes, and is an extension of you, but you build your team of all the things that you're not. Um, and you really, you really fill, form a team that and it creates this kind of like this, this, this unity and this, um, and you have this shared vision. And so um, now my role is very much sort of CEO and founder. So I sort of on a, so my typical day is we start, we have, I run a remote team. 
Um, and that's something that I've always done. And we do have a we do have our sort of head office in Vancouver, downtown Vancouver. Um, but you know, my um, a lot of my team work on the East Coast. So um, my mornings will start with calls with them. Um, and we'll start with East Coast calls. So we typically kick off the week with a team meeting on Monday morning. Um, and we have like a very specific kind of community culture. It's, um, you know, we run, um, there is like a lot of responsibility and autonomy given to um, the, the, the really talented people that I have running certain aspects or units of my business. I really don't believe in micromanaging um, people. So I really believe in, in giving people the space and mm-hmm. um, the trust to be their most creative um, and their, their best selves. So our team is one of a lot of creative autonomy and a lot of authenticity, a lot of honesty. Um, we are very over-communicative. It's a team of 99% women um, we have one guy who, um, Doug Crow, who runs our marketing. I recruited him from Shopify and we're really, really lucky to have him. Um, and so typical day is, is we'll run meetings in the mornings and then, um, and then basically the afternoons are predominantly focused on sort of like our task oriented work. So when you have a remote team, a lot of your communication takes place on Zoom. So we use um, Zoom, which I think you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, we use Slack. We use Monday. We use Trello. We use email. And then um, we're all communicating um, on Google Docs. So it's very, it's a very millennial um, run company. Um, it's sort of, we as a team get together every quarter physically. And so we'll have a team, what we call team week. Um, and we get together every quarter this quarter, or I would say next quarter, everyone's getting together in Wellington. Um, and so we're all going to be in, in Wellington and we do, um, team, you know, team building exercises. Um, we have, we do activities to build out and strengthen our, you know, our, the trust and connection amongst team members, because I think that really facilitates strong communication. And if you're a remote team, it really, you really need to be able to have, um, a strong line of communication with everyone. Everyone needs to be able to speak openly um, and speak honestly and speak authentically in order, I think, for things to move along at the pace that they tend to do at noelfloyd.com. It's a pretty fast moving company at this stage in our growth cycle, which is which is really exciting. For sure. Um, so, so what would you say, I mean, running this multifaceted brand, uh, what would, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges? That's a really good question. Um, I think when you get given opportunities to grow faster, I think it's important still, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever received from a mentor of mine was to crab walk your way into something. So not to make big, big sudden movements, but to really try to crab walk your way. And I've tried to follow that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I think at this stage, when you have this many, um, this many, we have, you know, we have now four units, four different business units we have. um, And, you know, they came out all quite um, sort of one after another this year. And so I think um, one of the most, the biggest challenges is maintaining that connection with the community. Like this weekend, I was messaging with 
uh, writers who have been shopping on NF Shop. And I wanted, you know, I really love connecting with people who have experienced my my platform in one way or another directly. Um, and so that's really important to me. And and so it's at this stage having the team that I have and and having um, you know so much going on as a company. I really want to maintain that connection with the community directly. And I have a really tough time, I think, delegating that to other people. I really still like to have those authentic conversations with, you know, whether it's my, whether it's someone who's just reading the blog or whether it's someone who subscribes to the magazine or whether it's someone who has, who has just signed up for the the subscription box or whether it's someone who is interested in NF Insider or if it's someone who just bought a pair of breeches on NF Shop. I really, really love having those conversations directly with, with people. So um, I think that's a challenge is making sure that I still have the time and it, it ends up always going into my weekend, um, mm-hmm. which I'm totally happy with, I think, as a founder. And you just ha- you have so much passion behind what you do and you really want to you want to you want to still stay at that gr- grassroots level, even though as you grow bigger and bigger, it becomes more and more difficult. Um, and so and then going back to the point I made about um, crab walking, I think when you get given the opportunity to grow bigger and faster it's really tempting to do that. And I think it's important still to like make small moves and not to just kind of, um, not to, to, not to disregard the, I think the importance of slowly moving into something or crab walking your way into it. And I try really hard still to, to follow that advice. I mean, I definitely think that that's something that you do because I mean, really, everything that has the Noel Floyd stamp on it that that I have been involved in or I have seen um, has been amazing and, and totally um, goes back to kind of your core mission from when you started about um, kind of bridging that gap in the industry and, and keeping people connected. I mean, I love your magazines. I love, I have loved getting the subscription box. It's such a great idea and it's so tastefully put together. And, um, I think your online shop is so, so cool. So I've just loved kind of hearing your back, like your background and kind of how all of this came to be. And, um, I just thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Bethany. I mean, it's really rad to I think that doing a podcast is like a brilliant idea. And I think it's a great way for people within the industry to tell their stories. And as, as I mentioned, I really love people being able to tell their stories. So um, I was, it's just, I, it's an honor to be asked to, to, to speak today. Yeah. I, I'm happy to have you. And Hey, if you ever have some free time, you know, you can always mentor me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I consider the invitation accepted. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, let the record show for everyone to hear that Noel Floyd is now my mentor. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Thanks girl. Thank you so much. And um, I wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. If you got something out of this episode, could you do me a favor? I would love you forever if you could take five seconds and head over to the app where you listen to this episode and rate and review the Equestrian Podcast. It's super easy to do, and it allows people like you to find the podcast, and it allows us to find some amazing new guests and create awesome content just for you. Thanks in advance. Until next time, my name is Bethany Lee. Enjoy the ride.